Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your direct support to be able to keep this interdependent podcast alive and continue to explore so many topics and perspectives sidelined by mainstream media. So if you're inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. For now, though, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Amalia Leguizamon. Going back to your question of why it's important to focus on regular people, right? Like these people in the in between, right? The people who who bear some costs but also reap some profits is because it gives us also an insight into most people's lives. The reason why the world continues to be like it is is because the majority of the people does agree on it and continues to operate without conflict. So for as long as we don't understand how those processes work, right? How how we become acquiescent, not much might change. Amalia is associate professor of sociology and core faculty at the Stone Center for Latin American Studies at Tulane University. Her research examines the political economy of the environment in Latin America particularly Argentina's swift agrarian transformation based on the early adoption and intensive implementation of genetically modified soybeans. She is the author of Seeds of Power, Environmental Injustice and Genetically Modified Soybeans in Argentina, which really complements the episode published right before this one with Dr. Craig Hetherington, who wrote The Government of Beans, because that also looked at the expansion and influence of soybean monocultures in Latin America except focused on the Paraguayan context instead of here, primarily focused on Argentina. So Amalia begins by highlighting some of the key parallels and differences between their focuses and learnings. And if you haven't listened to our conversation with Craig, I highly recommend that one as well, just to help you further deepen and broaden your understanding of this similar issue, but how they manifested differently as they've been embedded within a different social context. They are about the same topic, in a way, about soybean production, the socio-ecological consequences, right? But in these two different countries, right? Like neighboring countries, Argentina and Paraguay. As I say, we share similar themes. We have a different approach in the sense that, for first of all, he's an anthropologist and I'm a sociologist. So reading Craig's book, and I 100% recommend it for everyone to read, like his ethnographic feel is just fascinating like the all the the time that he has spent in the in the field like we have different approach in that sense because I take at some point like a more macro political economy view with some ethnographic vignettes right so that's a difference for people who are interested about methods or how to write something that shocked me in the comparison of the books and that it is the key of my puzzle in the sense is that Craig begins his book saying, soy kills, la soja mata, right? And he begins with establishing that soybean production, particularly this type of soybeans, this genetically modified soy, is harmful, right? And people are okay with that. I mean, they're not okay with that. They're okay. They agree on the idea that soybeans kill. They harm people because of the violence against campesinos, against small peasants, and fumigations harm health 
and soil and water environment, etc. In Argentina, that is not the case. There is no agreement around that. Much on the mm. contrary, and this is what I explore in my book, is that there is strong support towards soybean production, towards the technology of genetically modified crops, of the technological package, right? So the entire package of growing genetically modified soy and of a development project based on agro-exporting. So actually, the negative socio-environmental consequences in Argentina, which in many ways are similar to Paraguay, in many, not all, but in many are the same, there isn't a consensus around harm. So, and on the contrary, and this is what I explore in the book, is that there are a lot of silences. So there are people who are worried, there are people who are concerned, there are people who are seeing particularly the health impacts that come from agrochemical exposure, and yet they don't know how to navigate that. Because at the same time, soybean, soybean exports bring so much money <laughs> into the country, and they also bring modernity, right? So it isn't just that people are interested for pure economic purposes or economic interests, right? But there is a strong cultural attachment in this agrarian transformation based on technological innovation that, that producers support a lot. So, so it was interesting to, to have this conversation with Craig and to read these books back to back to see how we are exploring different, or in a way, similar power dynamics that resolve in different ways. Yeah, and it's definitely interesting to note the different lenses that you've used. So with you, it's more the macro and, you know, with your background in sociology. And then with Craig, it's more of the anthropological lens. So I'm sure that brings unique perspectives to both of your works on different countries' histories. And this expands on what you just talked about, but Argentina is the third largest grower and exporter of GM crops in the world after the U.S. and Brazil. Mm -hmm. And so to further help us understand the relative lack of a resistance movement within Argentina, there is the historical context of how GM crops have been framed as being good for the ecosystem and even supportive of people who are struggling with economic poverty. I would love if you could expand more on the promises and dominant narratives that have become really pervasive within Argentinian communities that have been influential in shaping public perception on the role that GM crops can play in the name of advancement and addressing poverty and improving people's quality of life. The interesting thing about how this narrative is being employed in Argentina is that it is a broader narrative, right? Like it is a narrative that is being used at global level to support or to promote technological innovation in agrarian technologies and GMOs in particular, right? It is part of a, a broader narrative brought forward by the biotech industry, but also many think tanks and sustainable development scholars in general, right? Like this idea that cutting edge agrarian technologies like genetically modified crops are tools for sustainable development. And the idea is that we are able to address global hunger, poverty, and environmental degradation by adopting these new technologies that promise to grow more food using less resources. Like for example, addressing the problem of soil exhaustion or drought, for example, with 
genetically modified crops that are drought resistant, right? Like this idea that that we can continue to grow our food and really like doing everything that we do in the same way, right? Just by changing the methods, right? Like the technology. Eventually the goal, and and this is the, the main frame in which these technologies are advanced, is how we can continue to grow our economies, right? How how can we continue to continue to have constant economic growth while minimizing ecological impacts, right? Like, and this is the the promise of sustainable development in general that that we can continue to live the same and consume the same, but do it in a way that is more environmentally friendly, right? And and at core or at the core of of these technological transitions and of GMOs in particular, the idea is that what we need mostly is knowledge, right? The immaterial knowledge, the knowledge to innovate and to transition to green technologies. So uh, this is the dominant narrative of, of GMOs in general, right? Like, and this comes from the green revolution, right? So this is a, a new, or like not new, but like an it, it is a, a discourse that has been adapted to climate change, that it comes from the time of the of the Green Revolution, right? Like this idea that we can continue, that we can grow more food for more people, right? And to address hunger, poverty, all at the same time through technological innovation without changing anything in social dynamics. A lot of times, as you've noted, when we're looking at any sort of a crisis or tension, we tend to focus on this binary of those who are for and those who are against, those who are at the top and those who are at the bottom. And we tend to not shine light on those who are in between. And I know this was a specific focus that you were curious to highlight, really looking at those who are at once facing some of the detrimental impacts of the GM crops in Argentina, for example, yet at the same time, who are also reaping some of the benefits. And as you share, this is a quote, I want to emphasize the often neglected yet fundamental legitimation and discursive processes that underpin injustice, because as Stephen Luce argues, the most invasive and insidious form of power is exercised when subjects come to comply with their situation of domination and thus remain acquiescent in the face of injustice, end quote. I wonder why you think it is that we tend to overlook these people who are in between. And if you could elaborate more on this idea of oppressive power being legitimized by those who are in many ways harmed by that same existing power dynamic. Yes. Thank you for reading the book so carefully. Why do we tend to overlook those who are in between? I um, I think that we, and I mean sociologists and social scientists in general, particularly the anthropologists, right, sociologists, political scientists, we tend to focus on the people that we share our politics with. And so typically we put a lot of emphasis in studying movements. So we tend to, if, if you look at books published, articles written, the emphasis is mostly on the people who protest, on the people who bear the cost and have done something about it, right? Like that is the bulk of particularly books and stories about environmental justice, right? Like those are the people that inspire us. Those are the people that we want to know more about that. Those are the people that we're hoping that more people will be like them, right? On the other side, like some people are starting to investigate, learn about, do more research on 
the powerful, right? And the affluent and the wealthy and people who make decisions. That's extremely important too. It's hard to access sometimes. It's hard sometimes to, to understand them. And I'm thinking here of people who sometimes, not only the powerful, but people who have a different politics. And I'm thinking of Archie Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, right? Like how do you enter into the field to speak with people that you don't agree on their politics? But I think it is more and more, it, it is even more difficult. And, and this was extremely difficult to me to even think about, okay, how do I enter the field? What kind of questions do I need to ask? To engage with people that are everyday regular people who are doing things that are not really visible, right? That they are not testable. How do you test acquiescence, right? How do you show consensus? How can you tell that people who overtly are telling you that things are working well for them, that there's something that actually is not? It is a challenge, right? It is a challenge as a researcher. I do write about that. For for my case in particular, it, at some point it became extremely evident that a problem was going on because of the agrochemicals, right? I knew about, I had scientific data that showed that agrochemicals, that extensive and constant exposure to agrochemical fumigations harm health and there was, and, and there is, and there is growing protest around that. So I knew that that was a reason for potential contention to emerge. And in many cases, it wasn't. So in a way, it was, quote unquote, easy to test that, right? But I think that going back to your question of why it's important to focus on regular people, right? Like these people in the in between, right? The people who, who bear some costs, but also reap some profits is because it gives us also an insight into most people's lives. In a way, I have these conversations with my students because when they read the book, they're like, oh, these people, if, if this is happening, like, why are they not activating, engaging, protesting? And I'm like, think about your own life, right? We are, in a way, many of those people all the time. Like, we're, we're being faced to all kinds of injustices or uh, environmental hazards and risks. And yet, most of the time, we don't activate, right? We don't mobilize, we don't engage, we, don't, we do not organize. Most of the time, we just find ways to make life normal and to be okay, even within risk, even when exposed to hazards, right? So I think that it's extremely important for us as social scientists to try to understand those dynamics because the reason why the world continues to be like it is is because the majority of the people does agree on it and continues to operate without conflict. So for as long as we don't understand how those processes work, right, how, how we become acquiescent, not much might change. Yeah. As we dive deeper and break this binary of those who are for or against something, I'm starting to think that it's not been very helpful nor instructive for people to stay at the surface and to make judgments about people based on their stances on particular issues and drawing clean lines and 
ostracizing particular peoples for being for something that we're against or being anti something that we're for. Because we've all at the end of the day been conditioned by different narratives and our experiences and how they've been justified. And so while most people, I believe, share similar values at the heart of wanting good health for ourselves and our families, wanting to feel safe and secure and wanting to do good by our greater communities, however we define that, we still often end up on vastly different sides of different issues because of the stories and circumstances and social circles that we've been exposed to. And those who are in between, I think, illustrate this point really well and really challenge the dichotomy of pro and anti top and bottom because they prove that it's not a simple binary and that there are spillovers that if we're really interested in seeing the full picture, we should have the curiosity and humility to learn about rather than straight up dismissing or ostracizing people completely for what is really a nuanced stance that we may just not fully understand. But in light of this, what other insights or questions have you been thinking about as you have focused on those who are in between? And what value can complicating this discourse offer us? So what what I find about this binary talk about GMOs in particular, right, is that the entire talk, the entire discourse, particularly in the media, it is dominated by the by the binary, but you're either for or against GMOs. And I mean, they're like entire, like even the National Geographic put out this story, like when I was writing the book, it's like people who are against GMOs are against science. And, and there's more and more this, and as I said, right, but particularly from the media, but this is corporate paid many times, but not always, right? The, the promotion of this talk of GMOs in the similar matter of climate denial, right? So if you are against GMOs, then you are like a climate denier, like you do not believe in the science, right? They're, they're like, some are starting to create like this similar parallel, which it isn't, right? It isn't at all, but it does inform how the public views GMOs. And, and it happens, I mean, for me, my, my testing ground is always my students because Every semester, I get 50 different people that I get to test these questions, and, and I get to get have their feedback. And what happens is that for most people who are environmentally conscious or environmentally inclined, they are against GMOs. They don't want to eat them. They don't want them in their food, right? They don't want them in their bodies. They don't want to feed their children with that. And yet, when I ask, Okay, when do you eat genetically modified crops? My students will say things like, oh, strawberries, tomatoes, peaches, right? And they will come up with all kinds of foods that are not genetically modified, right? So our knowledge and our education of what genetically modified crops are, how are they grown, how do they transform, how do they impact the environment, how do they transform societies are actually quite limited. So most of our experience, and I'm saying our, our like people who live in the United States, right? <laughs> Urban people who live in the United States is through, we experience genetically modified crops through consumption. And in the United States, that becomes more complicated by the fact that there's no, there are no labeling laws. I mean, now there are, there's a new labeling law that is even more complicated and confusing. So 
we really do not know when we're eating these genetically modified crops ever, right? So the whole setup is always, or I mean, it's not, it is presented as you're either for and against, and if you are against, as I said, most people that are in counter really have no full clear idea of why they are against them or like what particular consequences or transformations or how or why, like how do, do even GMO crops work, right? And people who are for, well, they are most of them, they are corporate scientists. So my take with the book and my take as a sociologist is to go beyond that dichotomy, go beyond the binary and try to investigate these nuances. And most significantly is to look into, to look at how the technology is used, right? Technologies are not good or bad, right? Because when we look at, when we look at like that, then it means that, that the technology per se is somehow neutral and objective and, and it isn't. Right? The technology is used by people for different purposes. And, and the way in which technologies are deployed and adopted in different contexts is going to have many, many different consequences. Right? So if you plant one acre of genetically modified soybeans, and that's it, or every three years, it's not the same than if you plant 20 million hectares <laughs> twice a year over 25 years and there's people living nearby right the mm -hmm. consequences of agrochemical drift are different even though it is the same technology for example right so i i always move away from is this good is this bad the question is who is employing these technologies and for which purposes and what's happening in this in the middle in between right, of how people negotiate cost and benefits, but it's neither nor. Yeah, that broader context is always really important to situate any sort of conversation or stance within. And also something that intrigued me is when you talked about how the promotion of the national identity of mm -hmm. being Argentinian shifted people's ways of relating to the land or their values. And this is a quote, as you share, when we follow these structural and historic threads of these core values and beliefs about national identity, we can see the long lasting impact on Argentines' perceptions of nature, rural life, agricultural production, and the nation's role in the global economy, end quote. This invites me to think about how nationalism, to me, sometimes feels like a fabricated story of identity because I think it plays off of our very real and innate desires and yearnings to belong. And yet, in many cases, the establishment of nation states as political institutions came about as the result of the severance of place-based relationships and really displacing those who have the deepest ties and knowledges of the landscapes that they belong to. So I'd be curious to hear you talk more about how the nationalization of one's identity and how people define their sense of self has affected Argentines' ways of relating to the land and to community, as well as whether you think this is a pattern that we might be able to recognize elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I am always curious to understand the presence 
in the light of the past, right? I, I don't think that it is possible to understand what's happening if we if you don't go back mm-hmm. and try to figure out, okay, how do people make it to here? And and for that, we need to look at changes in the political economy, but definitely we also need to look at cultural values and how those shape the present. So in Argentina, to understand the presence of soybean extractivism, I found it necessary to explain that story. That is also a story of immigration, of the creation of the state, of independence from the colonial power. And, and all those come together, I find, quite neatly. So what happened in Argentina, and you ask, like, how does this translate or transpire, or can we see this in other countries, right? Like the the history of Argentina becoming a nation state is is parallel to what is happening in other Latin American countries that are becoming that that, that are becoming independent of Spain in the 1800s, right? And and literally groups of people, groups of men uh, who have been educated in Europe or in European values, like literally sitting down and writing down and putting together what kind of nation state do we need? I mean, it's in a way a very inspiring time, I can imagine, but like all this much to do, like people being inspired into what happened here in the United States with the independence, right? Like there's like a new sense of freedom, yet the ties, right? So what happens? So in Argentina, like this newly established government decides to, as I say, to establish a nation state that requires, first of all, to populate. Argentina was a massive expanse of land that was not as populated as other newly independent countries like Mexico, Peru, right? Like where the the uh, indigenous empires like are in the millions of people. So there is the need to conquer the territory and there are military campaigns that will force dispossession of indigenous peoples of their lands. But I, I find myself always having to make this, I don't know, like extra side explanations because for particularly coming or, or, or explaining these things from the United States, I find sometimes that some people and like make homogeneous the entire uh, Meso Central South America into how populated it was, mm-hmm. and Argentina it wasn't. I mean, it doesn't mean that there were indigenous groups; they were, but because they were more dispersed and less populated, they were conquered violently quite quickly, right? So they couldn't fight back as much as other groups were. Um, there were more and more people. So there, there is a military campaign that is trying to conquer the desert in the sense that, so one of the guiding myths that are happening here or that become to be established here is that this idea is that, that civilization needs to conquer barbarism, right? So this idea, this new ways, this hybrid modernity that is being established in all these newly independent Latin American countries that are trying to copy European modernity or more like this processes of bringing progress through technological innovation, right, of the adoption of Western values, but shaped to the realities of the newly independent post-colonial countries, right? Uh, so what is the shape of that? And what does 
quote unquote civilization look like in the fight against quote unquote barbarism, right? Like this idea that these men have that indigenous people, natural landscapes, everything that is non-Western is barbarian, right? And needs to be controlled and tamed and made productive through technology and also through immigration, right? So a big process of immigration begins, right? To try to bring European people into Argentina. And this is the, the, the same time period when there's the massive immigration into the United States too. Uh, so we're talking 1870 to 1920s. And so massive like droves of migrants arrived to Argentina being promised in the same way that they were promised here in the United States, right? Like, uh, we're going to give you land, we're going to give you tools as a way to conquer the territory, right? In, our, in Here in the United States, it was called the Westward Expansion, right? Like this manifest destiny. So these are similar guiding myths that are taking taking place at the time, like this idea that it is rightful for the European descendants to, to bring modernity, progress, growth through, uh, as I said, the adoption of Western values and adoption of Western technologies in order to make the land productive. So this process for Argentina begins, as I said, in the late 1800s, early, uh, early 1900s, massive migration, and with that, a new guiding myth becomes established, which is that of Argentina as the granary of the world, the breadbasket of the world, that of Argentina becoming a capitalist agrarian space, a capitalist agrarian country, right, that is going to grow food to feed the world. So a particular ki kind of rural producer becomes established, which is different than the campesino peasant smallholder type of, of the rest of the Latin American region, right? So here we're talking about people of immigrant descent. So they're white, they're Europeans. They are the men who are employing all kinds of agrarian technologies that are growing in a very large scale in order to grow crops that are mostly destined for exporting. The, men, the women are not involved in agriculture at all or very little. So this is not a family agriculture in small scale, scale, right? But it's, again, very large scale, most of it through renting land, which is a pattern that continues now with soybean production. As I said, using rented technologies in order to minimize costs and maximize profits and at core with the idea that the children in the family will be able to move to the city, right? So an, an, another important guiding myth of Argentina is that, it's, is that Argentina is an urban nation. It's an European modern urban nation. Like most of the people in Argentina, actually Argentina with Uruguay had one of the earliest urban transitions in the world, right? Like it has more people living in the cities ever since. Mm. So how do you put that together in order to grow soybeans? I mean, it makes all the sense because to grow soybeans now, you can do that from the distance, using technologies, living from the city. And this was very um, striking for me talking with soybean producers into how fascinated they are by this idea of dominating nature, right? Like they have been able now to control nature and make it predictable and profitable. And that is the continuity of a pattern of a way of thinking 
of themselves and of the environment ever since. So this idea that now through the adoption of this technological package and through soybeans being so profitable, now Argentina can grow economically brings to the next uh, or or like part of the misguided myth of the granary of the world is a reminiscence or a nostalgia for the past when Argentina was a rich country like Australia, right? Like there was a lot of promise in the early 20th century that Argentina was somehow different from the rest of Latin America and was rich. And it was at that time, right? But there is for Argentines, there's a lot of nostalgia around that. And they still cannot fully figure out what happened in their country into a recurrent economic crisis, high poverty, high inequality. Uh, so soybeans now represent a return to that great time when Argentina was rich and was the granary of the world. So all those things come together to to explain support for soybean production as a model model of development for the country. Yeah, it certainly feels like a reflection of the colonial history extending into the present with this sort of new frontier mindset of extraction and way of relating to the land persisting to this day. And with Craig, we had discussed the irony of uh, improving social welfare by way of destroying ecosystems Mm -hmm. with monocultures for export for the currency of money to be able to support, you know, the expansion of social programs. And we talked about how this challenges the dominant ideas of wealth that is based on the representational currency of capital. And I want to bring a parallel question to you, but focused on the idea of progress and the universalization of what advancement even means, which you know you had talked about throughout this conversation. But as an example, you've talked about this widely accepted humanitarian goal of feeding the world and ending global hunger through technological innovation, such as through GM crops. And of course, I think many of our listeners will be familiar with that sort of narrative. But how have things like this become so pervasive in discourses on social justice and sustainability, where a lot of people interested in these topics really share similar values in wanting to see a betterment of the world? And then also just what underlying assumptions should be challenged from the idea of sustainable development altogether and how it's led to these seemingly universalized goals like the United Nations SDGs that a lot of people use as the framework to base our path forward on. The first thing that you were mentioning was about the parallels that are happening in Argentina as with Uruguay, as with all the other Latin American countries who are basing their economies on natural resource extraction for exportation. It's this extremely difficult situation in which they're in, into how, like, what does progress or what does development mean, right? And I mean, now, now the talk is around sustainable development in the sense that, okay, how can we address social needs, right, with the classical development, but doing it in a way that is environmentally sustainable so that we can continue doing the same, right, or like uh, tapping on natural resources in a way that future generations can still do in it. And so that's how the UN, I mean, I'm, I'm badly rephrasing, right? But that's like a key uh, definition of sustainable development. Latin American countries are in a huge dilemma 
because they have many poor people. So they have like the the needs of the poor are pressing, are extremely pressing. So how do you pay for welfare programs? How do you pay for infrastructure? How do you pay for schools? How do you pay for hospitals? And what Latin American governments have found out for centuries now is that they are wealthy in resources that the rest of the world needs. And that has changed. It was before it was gold and silver, then it was sugar, then bananas, right? And now we're in a, at a point where what, what brings wealth are soybeans, fresh flour, lithium for batteries, right? Different natural resources that the world needs and that brings foreign income. Now, uh, many Latin American governments, and this was the case of Argentina, with the Kirchners, which is the time that I'm studying, the time Craig studying Lugo at the time, right? But what what some governments have decided was to tap on the natural wealth that is being exported and tax it, or in some cases nationalize them, like the case of Bolivia with gas, with oil, with minerals, Venezuela with the with oil, right? Like so. So governments are deciding, have decided to tap on some part of this natural wealth and redistribute that to help the poor. And I find that it makes sense, right? Because for as long as there is really no other option, and, and I don't recall exactly what was your question, right? But how, how does that relate to the sustainable development goals that the United Nations is putting forward? I, I find personally that there should be, or that there there actually is, like there are some needs that are more pressing than others. Access to water, right? Having access to food, having access to education, having access to a hospital. Those things take precedence in everyday life for people compared to protecting the environment. They do. Like when I do interviews with in, in any and all my interviews, like protecting the environment often becomes something that is way too abstract to even grapple, right? People are concerned about their health, certainly. They are concerned about the health of their children. But if your option is between protecting the health of their children and feeding your children, feeding them often becomes more pressing. So if you work in a toxic factory, right? Like the need to keep that job often takes precedence to bringing down the factory because it's polluting the entire community if there are no other economic options, right? So I find that, I don't know, it is, it is an extremely challenging situation that, that is sometimes quite easy to see on the outside, right, from the comfort of our offices. <laughs> And to say, oh, why shouldn't we be doing all these things? And he said, well, because I find that in the everyday, all these are competing needs and demands for people in their everyday life, for and as well as for politicians and their governments as to how do you break out from all those cycles, particularly in a global economy, right? Like it is extremely hard for any poor country to say, Sorry, we're not doing this when external debt, like foreign debt is so big, for example, right? Like 
let's say, well, we're not going to pay our debt to the IMF, to the World Bank, and we're going to use our money to help our poor so we can start protecting our forests. It's impossible. Like, it's literally impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there is some global coming together, which is what the youth movement and like the climate movement were trying to bring to COP26. Like, well, until there is some global arrangement in which the global north are paying for helping the global south, or there is some debt for nature swaps, or the whole thing is extremely constrained. It definitely sounds like a reflection of the historical theft and the debt mm-hmm. from colonial history never having been addressed, which leads to you know a lot of people's idea, especially in quote-unquote developing or post-colonial communities that in order to address their immediate poverty, economic poverty that is tied to and often the result of the history of colonization, they may need to resort to more forms of extraction in order to sell, in order to make money for their immediate and more urgent needs to just feed their families. Yeah. So, you know, in without the history having and historical traumas having been addressed, and then of course with this economic system that is full of contradictions, it puts people in very difficult positions where a lot of people often have to make these hard choices of needing to prioritize their more immediate needs. But through the system, a lot of those more immediate needs can only be met in ways that perpetuate other crises. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there are no easy answers and there are many contradictions, but I think it really speaks to our need for a deep systemic overhaul. Definitely. I totally agree. I totally agree. And for, I like how you said it, right? Like addressing past wounds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as I said, some people are, are calling for debt for nature swaps, like or forgiving external debts, ways in which we can, I have this conversation sometimes with friends and colleagues into how to make responsible the colonial powers for the theft. Or can it be ever returned? And mm-hmm. and I don't know how, but I think it is an important exercise. Yeah. It is an important exercise to to figure that out or keep thinking about it. Because I I think that it needs it needs to be considering in any in any multilateral agreement plan for climate change. All that needs to be considered. Right, this mm-hmm. um, international relationships and I mean the world system. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine how it will happen. Also, but I, where I am right now, I do feel that it is important in order for us to actually reverse this trend of global and self destruction and to work towards collective healing to really mm-hmm. address the the traumas that have not yet been addressed from the past. Yeah, and. I guess in spite of there not being a unified and large movement against GM crops in Argentina, as there might be in other countries, I'm aware that there still have been some small peasant and indigenous groups who are leading the resistance against those top-down and corporate-backed forces. Mm -hmm. So what has some of this effort of land defense looked like, and what is it that inspires you most about some of the cracks that you're seeing being created? Fortunately. I mean, much has changed in Argentina since I did my field work and now since the book has come out. So there is much more awareness 
and much more contestation against soybean production. Some of that is happening, as he mentioned. Some of that is being led by indigenous movements, in particularly in the north of the country, and some in the south now, not related to soybeans, right? But there has been a lot of indigenous activism around controlling land, right? So the interesting thing that that indigenous movements bring forward is is a critique and contestation against GMOs, but not just around GMOs, right? But around how agriculture and agricultural development is put forward, right? Like what kind of development model Argentina is putting forward. So so that's why land is at the core of their struggle, right? Like control over their territories, over their resources, it's, it's a demand for sovereignty. At the same time, other uh, type of movement that has been growing in Argentina during this time is the movement of groups of people who are organizing against agrochemical fumigation. And, and that has grown a lot. In uh, So the awareness around the toxicity that comes from soybean production is much more on, on, on people's minds now. And people have been organizing. Mostly, these are movements uh, mostly led by women that have been organizing around protecting their children's health. But there have been like many kinds of alliances and networking has has happened. Uh, so now there are movements of teachers, like rural teachers, who are protesting against spraying near their schools or near the hospitals. So I find that that to be a, a beautiful example of of the potential alliances. Right, that that can come between movements to to make the movement movements expand and demand expand. It got too hot, and so we overthrew the system. Cause there's no place for human existence like right here on this bright. What has been an impactful book that you've read or publication that you follow? The book that I have very on my desk at this moment is A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet by Sarah Jaquette Ray. I find this book, uh, so I'm teaching environmental sociology. I teach environmental sociology every semester. And I find that more and more my students are eager, but they're also growing more anxious, more depressed, more mm. overwhelmed. So I have been more and more moving away. Well, not moving away, right? Like the, as in every class, there's a lot to discuss about theory and about how system works. But I'm more and more paying attention into the emotions that my students bring into the classroom to particularly dealing with climate change. And I find that this book, this book has been helping me a lot to mm. talk to them into how do you deal with that? Like, how do you deal with the emotions of being, of not feeling empowered or of feeling overwhelmed? Or how do you keep showing up to something that feels so so big or so distant or it makes you feel so small? Or particularly now with COVID that we're also disconnected. So 
I totally recommend this book. It's very, very well written, extremely engaging, and it gives you tips into how you deal with these emotions, but also how do you exercise your radical eco-imagination, which I think is something that, again, like because of COVID, has been crushed more and more. Like our world has become so small. It's key that we that we are able to think what kind of world do we want to see. Yeah, those are very relatable um, emotions that I'm sure a lot of us experience as well. So I appreciate that resource recommendation. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I take care of myself. I take care of others. And I keep showing up. So that's why I keep telling my students, take care of yourself, take care of others, keep showing up. And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? Them, my students, totally my students. They are the ones who bring all the difficult questions, make me, force me to do a better storyteller, story, story tell better stories, explain things different. And they care, they have an urgency. And that has been changing through the semesters and years that I have been teaching. They have an urgency to do something about climate change that I didn't, that it wasn't there before. Everyone has been very inspired by the youth movements for environmental and climate justice. And they are part of that. And that inspires me. Well, Green Dreamer, we've been talking about Amalia's book, Seeds of Power, which we will, of course, link to in the show notes. And you can also follow her on Twitter at dr underscore if I got that correct. Um, <laughs> Amalia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and honor to be in conversation with you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? What I tell to my students all the time, if you're not doing something yourself to change the world, Someone is making the decisions for you, so you better act. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep the show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also deeply appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share some of your favorite episodes with your friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Things It Would Have Been Helpful to Know Before the Revolution by Father John Misty. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.